earlier this week to when I was maybe just a little bit older than, than Adeline. Uh, growing up in Muskegon, our driveway was the hangout place for the whole neighborhood. We had a basketball hoop on our driveway, not one of these you know, newfangled portable ones. This is back in the days when it's nailed into your garage roof, you know, a two by four. And, and all hours of the, of the day, summer, winter, didn't matter. Our neighborhood played basketball in our driveway. In fact, we'd all have to be home for dinner. Our family would be gathered for dinner. We'd hear the thud of the basketball hitting the rim, knowing that the neighbors just showed up. They didn't need us to play basketball in our driveway. They just used our hoop. So it was really fun. I, I learned a, a, a lot of lessons on the court over the years as playing there with neighborhood kids. Obviously not enough good lessons about basketball because I'm not very good. But I can remember one of those lessons very clearly now, 35 years later, 35 years removed from that court. I can remember being out there one summer afternoon with my friend Mike, who lived three doors over, and Mike was my age, and, um, and we played basketball all the time in my driveway. So summer day, we're out there playing one-on-one, -on -one, and I'm back, far back behind the three-point line, and I step back, and I launch my patented three-point shot, and it does what it usually does, misses, okay? In fact, it missed off to the right. It hit the edge of the rim and shot off to the right, right towards my neighbor's house. Now, 90% of the wall of his house is concrete there, and about 10% is glass. Guess where the ball rolled to? It missed the 90%, rolled right to the window, that was ground level, with just enough force that the window broke. And my first thought as a kid is run away, right? Run away, just get away, they'll never find out who it was. My second thought is, that's a really dumb thought, because they'll know who it is. I'm the one who plays basketball. I'm going to get caught anyway, so why would you run away? So my third thought was, pick up the ball, go knock on the door, and say I'm sorry. So I picked up the ball, and I walked over to the neighbor's house. Now, it was a pretty new neighbor. I hadn't really met him yet. I didn't know this guy. All I really knew about him was that that he was old because he had gray hair, and gray hair means you're old, of course. So I walked over, I knocked on his door, and much to my chagrin, he was home. I was hoping he wouldn't be home, but there he was. And so my conversation with him was rather brief, standing with my basketball, and I just simply said to him something like, hi, I live next door, I was playing basketball, and my ball just broke your basement window. Um, if you want me to pay for it, I will, I'm, I'm sorry. And he wasn't mad. He, he just said, okay, thank you for telling me. And that's all, that's a whole conversation pretty much. And I thought, well, that wasn't so bad. It felt kind of good to go and not run away. And, and of course, who's going to make some cute neighborhood kid pay for the broken window? No one's going to do that. Guess what happened the next day? There's a knock on my door. And there he is with the receipt from the hardware store, billing me for his window. I thought, that's, he should... So I said, Dad, look. And Dad said, yep, you got to pay that. My dad didn't pay for it either. So the consequences still remained out of my measly allowance. I had to pay for the broken window. Now, I learned a lot of lessons through that experience. Lessons like, it's really hard to go say I'm sorry. Everything within me screamed, run away. Don't go knock on that door. It's really hard to say I'm sorry. 
right? I learned that it's really good to say I'm sorry. Because when I walked away not hiding it, it felt good. It felt like a, a load off my shoulders, right? I learned that even when you say you're sorry, sometimes the consequences still remain. I still have to pay for the window. I also learned to really like baseball <laughs> instead of basketball, right? You know, those, those lessons are lifelong lessons sometimes, right? 35 years later, I still know that it's really hard to say I'm sorry. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry to my wife when I mess up. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry to my kids when they de deserve an apology from their dad. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry to my friends when I hurt them. And it's really hard to say I'm sorry to God, which is kind of crazy to think about. Because God already knows everything I did, right? He already, he's not going to be surprised by anything I tell him, but it's still hard for me to go and say, God, I'm sorry. So this week in our one-word prayers, and I'm going to invite you and challenge you in your, I hope you're still trying to take, you know, 10 minutes a day to, to listen to God somewhere. Somehow I'm going to, we're going to focus on the word sorry. And remember what we're learning through this series. We're learning how to listen. So often our prayers of confession are so filled with words, right? We have plenty to be sorry about. We can list things on and on and on. But then, but then we don't take time to listen to what God has to say too. And we're going to hear this morning that, that the invitation from our God is an invitation into a conversation, right? To both speak and listen. And when it comes to this conversation, God makes it pretty clear in Scripture that he's waiting for us to begin. This conversation begins with us saying, I am sorry. Right? God's the one who invites us into this conversation. Right? We always come at his invitation. And he's eager for this conversation, but he's going to wait for us to start. He's going to wait for us to come first and confess. And so we need to learn how to be honest about our confessions. Because it's really easy for us to pray a, a kind of flippant prayer asking for forgiveness, isn't it? I remember all my years growing up, I think every prayer that my dad ended around the dinner table, it always ended with, and please forgive us for our many sins, amen. And then as quickly as he said amen, I said pass the potatoes, right? You, know, you, you tag that on, please forgive us for our many sins, amen. But honestly, I mean, that, that, that's true, God's willing to forgive, he's there, but that's not a true deep confession from me. I haven't spent any time with that prayer thinking about what I have to be sorry about? It's a blanket request, right? Without any true soul searching, without any true sorrow. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul points out the difference between two different types of sorrow, right? This is what he writes. He says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So we need to look at that for a few minutes this morning. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, right? Paul is really just putting on paper here what you and I already know to be true in our own lives. We know 
how to wor- say the words, I'm sorry. You know, like Mindy said, we teach it to our kids when they're, when they're really small. We know how to say those words to God and to each other. But honestly, even when we say them, we aren't always truly sorry, are we? We don't really mean it all the time. When we tell God that we're sorry, oftentimes we really aren't. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we, we enjoy the sin. And we don't really want to give it up. We enjoy the benefits that our disobedience brings us, right? We enjoy the financial bonus that cheating brings us or the good grade that cheating brings us. We don't want to give that back. We, we enjoy the popularity that maybe drinking or hosting that party or even bullying down the hallway. We enjoy the popularity and the laughter that that brings even if it's at someone else's expense. And we don't want to give that up. We enjoy the pleasures that our selfishness and our greed bring us in life, right? If we're not generous with others and we can keep it all for ourselves, there's a whole lot of fun stuff that we can do in life, and we don't want to give that up. And so we say sorry, we say the words I'm sorry, but but we don't honestly want to change. What we really are asking God is saying, let us keep the results of our sin and disobedience, but don't make me face the consequences, right? Let me enjoy the benefits of my cheating and lying and lusting and stealing and bullying and pride and greed. Let me have all those benefits, but please take away the consequences, both immediate and eternal. Don't make me change my life because I don't really want to change. Sadly, too many of us look at at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the sacrifice he made there as as kind of a blank check permission that we can sin and escape any punishment. Just quit saying, forgive me for my many sins. It's not the kind of conversation that God is waiting for from you and from me. God is looking for true godly sorrow instead of this kind of worldly sorrow that paul tells us brings death it it doesn't accomplish anything it doesn't it doesn't bring us the forgiveness and release that we're looking for so our conversation with god yours and mine needs to start with true sorrow at our sins you know we can see the difference between what does that look like what does godly sorrow look like as opposed to worldly sorrow we can see it pretty clearly laid out in two old testament contemporaries okay first of all we can see king david on the godly sorrow side take out your bibles we're gonna read two different stories in the old testament start in second samuel chapter 12. second samuel chapter 12 is page 248 in the bibles you have in front of you let me tell you, give you the background before, while you're looking that up, before we read it together. King David here has plenty of reason to be sorry. Okay, he did more than break a window. King David broke lives, and he broke God's heart. See, here's King David. He's the king of Israel at the time, and Israel is a world power in the known world then. And so as king, he had anything and everything he wanted. He had power, he had money, he had women, both wives and concubines. He had God's blessing. He was a man after God's own heart. 
he was in this wonderful, loving relationship with God, both listening and learning and obeying. And then he saw Bathsheba, his neighbor, his friend Uriah's wife, and he wanted her. So with Uriah out of town on military duty, he sends an invitation to Bathsheba that she just can't turn down. He's king after all. Right? And so one thing leads to another until they find out that Bathsheba is pregnant with David's child. And in order to hide his adultery, David sets up Uriah to be killed in battle. Murder made to be look, look like a war casualty. Uriah dies, and he takes Bathsheba home to be his wife. He's hidden his secret well. Nobody knows his dark secret. Nobody knows what he's done. And then comes chapter 12. And here at chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes to visit, and he boldly confronts David with his sin. And he really lays into him. He tells him the story about, about the rich man stealing the poor man's sheep. And then listen to, to verses 7 through 12. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Nathan lands with the truth, a devastating blow to David here. It's all true, and he lays it all out in front of David. David's sin is revealed, and he's got to respond now somehow. How does he respond? Look at verses 13 and 14. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And did you notice what David says here? He says hardly anything. Hardly anything. He doesn't make any excuses for what he did. He doesn't spend any words giving reasons of why he fell into temptation. He doesn't try and explain away to God his weaknesses. He doesn't shift blame to anybody else. He simply confesses. He simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. In other words, he simply says, I am sorry. I'm sorry. He owns his sin. 
and he's truly sorry. He repents, and then he shuts his mouth, and he listens. He listens for God, and he hears God. Right? Nathan speaks God's words of forgiveness to David. He takes away the punishment, right? On the books, the punishment for murder and for adultery was death. God had every right to say to David, you will die. Instead, he says, I forgive you. In grace, his guilt is washed away, and God restores him again. But I'm sure you notice that the consequences aren't all taken away. Just like I had to pay the bill for the broken window. There's still a debt to be paid, and David has to pay it. So the child that they have dies. And the brokenness of, of sexual sin infiltrates David's family for generations to come. And his own son ends up rising up and rebelling against him. The consequences still remain. But the pattern that Paul laid out in 2 Corinthians, that, that pattern is lived out here. Right? You see godly sorrow leading David to true and honest repentance, truly and honestly saying he's sorry before God, which releases God's salvation, grace, and mercy into his life, right? His guilt is washed clean by the power of God's forgiveness, leading David to live with no regret. Oh, I'm sure he had plenty of regret about his sinful choices. I'm sure he regretted the consequences that came about. But he had no regrets about being honest before God. He had no regrets about going and saying, I'm sorry, and having that conversation with God, who is faithful to forgive, as he promised he always would be. So there's what, what godly sorrow looks like. It leads to forgiveness, repentance, salvation, forgiveness, no regret, freedom. And that experience is so different from King Saul's experience. Turn back a few pages with me to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, page 225. Here, King Saul, the king who is, who is before David, he, he's doing battle against a neighboring nation, the, the Amalekites. And God comes to Saul, and he promises him. He says, I'm going to give you great victory over the Amalekites. I'm going to punish them for their past sins and their past rebellion. I'm going to use you to punish them. And so here's your assignment, Saul. Go to battle and destroy all of them. Okay, it's, it's godly judgment coming down on the Amalekites. Don't let anyone or anything live. So Saul goes into battle. God delivers this great victory to him. But instead of obeying God, Saul keeps the good stuff for himself. And he takes Agag, the king, as his own war trophy. In fact, he goes so far as to build himself a monument celebrating the greatness of his victory. And like King David, Saul gets a visit from a prophet of God, Samuel this time. Start at verse 13 with me and, and hear how this conversation goes. It says, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. 
but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And you probably notice that Saul says the same words as David. He comes to the point where he says, I have sinned. But unlike David, Saul does an awful lot of talking here, doesn't he? He just keeps on talking and talking. And all of his words reveal that his sorrow is far from a godly sorrow. It's a worldly sorrow. Because in his words we hear and we see that he doesn't truly own his sin. And he's not truly sorry. Right? Multiple times in this passage, did you notice? He points the finger of blame at someone else. Right? The soldiers did this. They took them. It wasn't me. It was those soldiers. He shifts the blame to them. And when that excuse doesn't hold water with Samuel, he justifies his sin. Right? He tries to justify it. He says, you know, we're doing this for God. We're, we're bringing these animals back because we're going to sacrifice them. We're going to worship God with them. The end justifies the means, right? He's convincing himself of that. And when Samuel doesn't accept that justification, when finally the judgment comes and says, God is rejecting you as king, suddenly he says, I'm sorry. And I think he suddenly says, I'm sorry, more to avoid the consequences that he just heard, rather than because he's really sorry. And that's what, that's what Saul's request to Samuel, said, go back home with me, that request is really saying, let me still be king. Because if Samuel says, yes, I will walk with you back to Jerusalem, that would proclaim to, to the whole nation that, that Saul is still God's chosen leader. Samuel is walking with him. God is walking with him. 
So his request is really, don't, don't let these consequences come my way. Please wipe away the consequences to my sin. His, his I'm sorry is really, I'm sorry that I got caught. And you and I know how this worldly sorrow system works. We know all about blame. We know all about justification. We know all about the fear of consequences, don't we? And so like Saul, you and I so often fill our prayers with words, with excuses, with justifications, with reasons. God, this is why I did it. And we end up, if we're honest with ourselves, often we're more sorry that we got caught. We're more sorry about the consequences than truly sorry about our sinful choices and our rebellion and our offense against God. You can tell the difference. You can tell if your repentance is true repentance, if your sorrow is true godly sorrow, by looking into the future. Right? Because true repentance is not only being sorry for what happened in the past, but making a commitment to pursue a new future. Saying, I'm sorry that I did it. Now help me not do it. Here's what I'm going to do instead. And if you don't have that future look, then you're not truly sorry. You're not truly repentant. I think we fill our prayers with words because we're afraid of what we might hear if we stopped and listened for God's response. If we just said, I'm sorry, truly meant it, and listened for God's response. Because we'd probably hear, as David did, as Saul did, we would probably hear the consequences. And those won't always disappear. And we don't want to hear those, do we? If we listened, we'd probably hear God's voice pleading with us to make a change. Say, yes, I forgive you, but, but make a change. Do it differently. And we don't really want to make a change. We don't really want to do it differently. But it's only when we silence ourselves enough to hear God that we will also hear God say to you and to me, I forgive you. We say, I'm sorry. God says, I forgive you. Now, turn with me to one more passage this morning. 1 John chapter 1. It's way in the back of your Bible. 1 John, page, page 986. 986. Here in this passage, John gives us a powerful promise of what we will hear if we confess. It, he, he reveals to us how this will play out. If we honestly say, I'm sorry, and then listen for God, then there is a truth and an assurance that you and I should hold on to dearly here. Start at verse 8 of 1 John chapter 1. We're going to read through the first two verses of chapter 2. Listen to this promise. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar 
and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John tells us, says, if we will listen, if we will make our confession a conversation with God, we will, first of all, hear Jesus Christ himself advocating for us, speaking on our behalf. Think about that. As, as humbling and frightening as it is to, to go and say, I'm sorry. Right? And I know how scared I was just to go and knock on my neighbor's door and tell him I broke his window. Imagine how humbling and frightening it is to go and say, I'm sorry, to the God of the universe, the judge of all people. Okay, as humbling and frightening as that is, you and I never walk into God's presence alone. We don't defend ourselves to the Father. We don't need to explain. Because Jesus Christ, his Son, boldly stands beside us and speaks for us. It is Jesus who defends us. It is Jesus who asks for grace and who asks for mercy and who asks for forgiveness on our behalf. And it's his to ask for. He's the one who died and rose again. He's the one who paid the price for our sin. He's the one who earned forgiveness for us and buys us back. And so you never stand alone before the God, the judge of the universe. Jesus Christ, his son, speaks his love, speaks his grace on our behalf. So hear Jesus advocating for you. And then listen for the words that God the Father promises that he will speak. He has promised that we, if we are faithful to say I'm sorry, he is faithful to forgive. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Those are precious words that you and I need to cling to. We need to hold to. If we stop and listen, if we honestly say we're sorry, if we listen for God, we will hear him say, I forgive you. We will hear him say, I love you. You are mine. I so badly want you back with me. Come back home. I forgive you. Now the consequences may still remain, yes. But the guilt disappears. Our guilt is gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sin and our guilt. So my guess is this week sitting down with God with the word I'm sorry and I hope you're still challenging yourself to, to simply 10 minutes a day of listening to God and, and hearing where he brings your mind and your heart. My guess is speaking the word sorry isn't something that any of us is eagerly anticipating. It's a conversation we would rather not have. 
The temptation for each one of us is going to be to run away and not talk about it. Let's pretend like it never happened, okay, God? And I can guarantee you that Satan is going to try and convince you not to have this conversation this week. He doesn't want you to truly confess. He doesn't want you to be forgiven and made right with God. And so he's going to fill your time. He's going to tell you you don't have time for this. He's going, to, he's going to tell you you don't need to do it. He's going to tell you it'd be better just to keep it a secret and run away. My guess is this week will be one of the most challenging weeks to find that 10 minutes, to find that time to sit and listen to God. But when Satan tells you, don't go there, Remember and know that God is there waiting for you. He's waiting for this conversation. He's waiting for you and me to start the conversation so that he can pour out his love for you. So he can pour out his grace and his forgiveness. He is patiently and lovingly waiting for us. So as you look at your life, as you look at the brokenness and the sin and all the places you've fallen short, pick those things up. Pick your sin up, your brokenness, put it under your arm, and there go knock on God's door. And say, God, here I am. I'm carrying this brokenness, I'm carrying this sin, I'm carrying this guilt. And I am sorry. Dare to begin that conversation. And my guess is that you will find that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Would you pray with me? Father God, your mercies are new every morning. Your grace and your forgiveness is unlimited and unending. The price that your son Jesus paid on, the pro, uh, paid on the cross for us covers every sin. No matter how, how much we think that we are beyond your reach, no matter how bad our sin and our brokenness might be that tempts us to think that this is too much, that you will surely say no, that you surely will not forgive. You have promised that you always will. And so, Father, make us willing to receive the gift of your forgiveness. Make us willing to truly say, I'm sorry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take our offering this morning. Our offerings are for church ministries and for Christian education tuition. And after the offering, we are going to spend a few moments in prayer together. And we're going to...